Hey everybody, my name is Pej. We come on every single Tuesday, right around noontime. I always have special guests in the recovery world. We talk about anything and everything that's recovery related or lack thereof. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We talk about everything recovery related, uh, mental health, substance abuse, uh, alcoholism, and any, anything that's, that has anything to do with recovery or lack thereof. There's many reasons why I have that part on here. You'll see in future episodes. Today, my special guest is Kimberly Russell, and she's a friend of mine from recovery. I've known her for a little while. Um, uh, we will get right into that. Today's topic is alignment in sobriety, balance and alignment in sobriety. Um, one of the reasons that I can. Hello. Nice to see you. You too. It's good to have you on here today. Um, <clears throat> I. You were asking me about this podcast, and I told you, you know, it, it originated probably about a month and a half ago. Um, we had another podcast before, but um, when I started this one, I wanted to bring on people who I, that I feel stand out to me and are special in, in the recovery community, and you're definitely one of them. And um, so we'll learn a little bit more about you, but one of the reasons that we wanted to have this topic today is because you've got a lot of stuff going on in your life. A little bit, and yes. So first and foremost, like, t tell me, who is Kimberly Russell? Oh, gosh. Who are you? That's like somebody's worst nightmare to be asked <laughs> that on the spot. Who am I? Um, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual being. I'm having a human experience. Um, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm in recovery from addiction. How long sober? Two, three, three and a half years now. Three and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Very and good. Then, uh, and then I'm also in recovery from an eating disorder as well as uh, working on codependency. Okay. So eating disorder is in the mix too. Did you, did you go to, what, what made you, okay, first of all, from what I understand, you're educated. Mm -hmm. You went to school. Yeah. This is before you got sober. Yes. Yeah, I graduated from Cal State Fullerton in 2013. Mm -hmm. I got my bachelor's in English literature because I actually wanted to be a teacher. That was my original plan. Did you want to be an English teacher? I uh, originally started as math, which mm -hmm. is why I started as a math major, switched to a math minor, mm -hmm. and then I uh, got my degree in English. And mm -hmm. yeah, the plan was to be an English teacher and a volleyball coach. Okay, so Cal State Fullerton is in Orange County, California. Yeah. Are you an OC girl? Yeah, I'm from, I was born and raised here in Orange County. Okay. I got loaded here and I got sober here. Okay, and which part of Orange County were you? Uh, Anaheim. Raised in Anaheim? Yeah. Hills or Anaheim? Anaheim Hills. Okay. Yeah. That's the nicer, <laughs> that's the nicer Anaheim. <laughs> the other Anaheim's not so bad too. I mean, you could go to Depends Disneyland. on where you go. Okay. It depends, exactly. Uh, Pets of Adventures on Harbor Boulevard. <laughs> uh, motels and hotels. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, so then, um, how old were you when you first started doing drugs or drinking? Uh, I think the first time I got drunk, I was 15. Okay. And then drunk, right? Yeah. And then was that just like partying like in high school? Yeah, I was at a party and I, and I didn't tell anyone that it was my first time drinking because uh -huh. I was embarrassed. Uh -huh. And so I didn't know that you were supposed to like mix drinks. Right. I just see an open liquor cabinet and a bunch of red cups. So uh -huh. I grab a bottle of aged tequila. I fill up the entire red cup just uh -huh. But straight tequila, right. and then I'm in the corner, and I just down the whole thing on just by itself, and uh, and then do it again a second time, and so probably within an hour, I was blacked out and throwing up. <laughs> At that party, you were blacked out. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, uh, and then when did it become a problem? Pretty much right away. For, right me, away. for me, I had the feeling. I got the feeling. I loved it. I wanted to do that every single day. I was. I would go through the medicine cabinets, drinking cough syrup, taking any pills just to see if it would change how I felt. And the reason that you wanted to change the way you felt is because 
did you not feel good? Um, I think for as long as I can remember, I I never felt comfortable. I always I was really really sensitive. Uh -huh. um, I really cared what other people thought of me. I I never felt content where I was. It was always this feeling of like I'll be okay once I get here, uh -huh. or once I have this thing, or once I achieve this goal, then I'll feel okay. Uh -huh. um, my head was really loud. I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of fears. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I just never trauma. I, no, no, for me, I, uh, I grew up in a really loving house. I have no alcoholics in my immediate family. Right. Uh, my family was very conservative mm -hmm. and um, very controlling, but there was no abuse and no there abuse. was no, you know, there's no lack of love. So for me, I don't have anything in my childhood that I can point to and say, that's why I drank or that's why I'm an alcoholic. Okay. It was literally, I like the effect produced by alcohol. All right. And then did you have any insecurities? I think you mentioned something about wanting to be accepted, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I definitely I um I was just socially really awkward and I was homeschooled until high school oh, and that were. was yeah, that was really a huge insecurity for me. I struggled with that a lot and I hated it and I felt like it made me feel so separate. I felt like I was missing out on this experience of going to school and and having friends and there was like this this life going on that I didn't get to participate in. So being homeschooled, that means you didn't have a lot of friends because you were always within the home, or did you have friends like in the neighborhood or anything like that? I had a lot of I did sports, and I there was you know our neighborhood was full of kids, so I had a lot of friends. I just didn't get to go to school with them. Okay, so athletic. What kind of athletics? I played every sport. I played, uh, my whole life I played soccer, I played basketball, I played softball, and then I started playing volleyball in high school. Okay, all right. Um, so you started, so after you know, growing up in Anaheim and everything, you then went to Cal State Fullerton at what age? I, I first went to Viola, which was where I started freshman year. Uh -huh. I went there on a full ride. For volleyball, mm -hmm. I played there for three years, and then I had my scholarship cut. Uh, I was suspended a couple times, and then I got my scholarship cut eventually for drinking and for selling drugs and uh, for drugs. Drugs. You were selling drugs. I was selling drugs on campus. On campus, and uh, and I also had a relationship with the assistant coach, mm -hmm. and so that combination uh, got my scholarship cut, and then I transferred to Cal State Fullerton. And spent uh, took two years there, and then graduated from there. <laughs> you had a relationship with the assistant coach. Yes. Okay, I won't even ask. <laughs> I think that speaks for itself. Yes. yes. Okay, and then um, drugs. Let's. Let me transparency. I asked you before we were going to do this. Yeah. Oh yeah. You totally. said you're an open book. What kind of drugs? Everything. For me, it was anything I could get my hands on. In high school, it first started with painkillers. I had a surgery, and then that transitioned to like you know, benzos and muscle relaxers, okay. um, anything that really, anything I could find. And then by college, it was meth and heroin. Meth and heroin. Were you, any intravenous usage? No, no, okay. I only, I smoked everything. Okay, and then uh, when you, when did you decide to go to Fullerton? Uh, I got my scholarship cut my junior year. So I was, I guess, 20, uh, 21, I remember. Okay, Yeah. but you were, were you knee deep in, Addiction and alcoholism. Yeah, I was knee deep in it, and uh, but I presented it to them as though uh, Biola is this really conservative Christian school, mm -hmm. and I party a little bit, yeah. and they so they kicked me out. Like I totally played myself off as the victim, mm -hmm. and the the coach was like, "Oh yeah, that's so unfair." Mm -hmm. And then she gave me a full ride to her school, right. and yeah, and it it went very badly. So okay, then. Fullerton was exactly what age did you start there? I was 21. I 21 and you were there for how long? Two years. 
Two years. Yeah. How are your grades? Surprisingly, my my last two years, I I started to to use drugs in a way that would uh, help me because I had an experience. I hitchhiked to Denver and was living in Denver on a on a bed bug infested mattress. I was riding my bike to work and uh, I was living with an abusive boyfriend and my bike tire popped and we were we were broke. We were so broke. Did you go to Denver because of him? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you met him out. I California. met him hitchhiking through Huntington Beach. Oh, he was hitchhiking. He was hitchhiking. And There's so a then, catch. That's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, uh, so I had that I experience. I didn't know about all this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. My, I got, I, I, uh, I made some, some, uh, moves in my, in my some choices. Yes. But yeah, so I, uh, I was trying to, oh, I, I was so broke and I couldn't stand being broke. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, well, this is my problem. My problem is I don't have the money to support my addiction. So I got super motivated. I used all my Adderall, I used all my cocaine, I used all my meth, and I channeled that into grades. And I was like, if I can get good grades, if I can get a good career, mm -hmm. then I can continue to support my addiction because I was done being broke in my addiction. I was panhandling, mm -hmm. I was you know, doing sketchy things for money. Like it was not good. And so I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I was like, my solution is to get educated and support myself. Okay, so you brought up um, Adderall. Mm -hmm. So I've done a lot of talks in um, UCs, you know, definitely in different universities in Southern California, in front of students and sometimes in front of their families in relation to Adderall use. Yeah. Um, were you using Adderall to be more focused in the school setting? Yes, but all I was using it for both. So okay. I, I started, I went and got a prescription when I was 19 because I was flunking out of school. Okay. I was on academic probation. I was just- What did you tell your doctor? Why, why, what was the necessity? Like you said, I can't focus. Yeah, I told her I have the attention span of a goldfish and I'm flunking out of school and I need something that can help me. And she put you on Adderall. And she put me, she'd been, yeah, she'd been my psychiatrist since I was, 14 or 15. So. Oh, so you've had a psychiatrist for long. Okay. Yeah. And then um, Adderall and what you were doing pain pills in school too. Mm -hmm. So then usually, typically, I think in, in a university setting or a college setting, a lot of students are on either Adderall or pain pills or both, mm -hmm. you know, depending. So, so okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then um, how, then what happened next? So I eventually graduated. I had uh, you got a degree. I got my degree. It was a miracle. And then I started going to uh, the teaching credential classes. And to be a teacher. To be yeah. I thought, what kind of teachers do you want to go? High school. Teacher? I was thinking high school. I did my observation hours at a junior high, and keep in mind, I never set foot in a junior high school because I was homeschooled. Yeah. So I'm sitting in the back of these junior high classes, and I'm like, oh my god, this is chaos. No, you didn't know what you were going to do. I had school. no idea what I was getting into. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Right. And uh, and I was coaching volleyball, mm -hmm. but then in my free time, I'm like smoking meth and heroin. And I just had this like, <laughs> I it just it didn't like I tell the reason I tell everybody that I didn't get my credential is because uh -huh. I I saw the school system and the you know the standardized testing and the mm -hmm. system is you know corrupt and it has racism and, you know in it and all these reasons so are like, it sounds like you were a great excuse maker it, i was super good yeah nice. I, I i knew how to like give somebody a reason that they would believe and take and not ask any more questions but yeah the reason was because i felt like a fraud and i knew that i wasn't a role model i understand all too well i mean i'm an artist i went to the art institute but i knew like three months before when i went to go on campus to go check out the campus and check out like what i was in for i was like i'm on drugs mm -hmm. 
And like, if, <laughs> if I don't like quit this stuff, I'm not going to, I'm going to be overwhelmed and I'm, I'm going to tank this thing. And you always know, like, it's always a great indicator when somebody gets put on academic probation, especially me, two times academic probation, then, it, then the dean was pretty much, he gave, they, she gave me one last chance and, and I, I blew that. Mm -hmm. So, but you mean it. Yeah. I mean, you actually graduated. Yeah. You're one of those. Yes. You're one of those that can actually do drugs and still achieve. Barely. Barely. Yes. Okay, but you made it. All right. And then, um, so when did you actually like want to get, or when, 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 sorry, I don't think we ever really want to get sober. What pushed you in the direction of sobriety? Um, I, for the longest time I knew drugs are my solution. I'm my problem. My parents tried to get me to go to rehab at 18 and I said, no, absolutely not. Not even an option you didn't on go. the table now. Okay. Um, and uh, what pushed me towards it was honestly was trying. The older that I got, I started trying to, I still was trying to like keep it together. Like mm -hmm. in my early twenties, it was like, I was super out there. I was a junkie. I didn't care. I would tell anybody that I did drugs. It was all over my social media. Like I was shameless. I did not care. Right. And then as I started to get older and I started wanting to, well, okay, I want to make money. I want to be professional. I want to be accomplished in these other areas of my life. Right. And so I started to try and become more functional. Mm -hmm. And as I did, I got lonelier and lonelier. And I, I was in relationships with, I had two significant relationships, both with alcoholics mm -hmm. or we were living together and it just, it really started to spiral and, and I, I started to notice that the people, even the people who are hard drinkers who mm -hmm. I drink with don't want to drink with me anymore and don't. Were you belligerent? Like, were you, were you just? I just wouldn't stop. Like but they, you they went would, hard. Yeah. Like, Did you have the mindset that I'll drink anyone under the table? Yeah. Oh, very okay. much so. Yeah. And of course I'm doing stimulants on the side. Yeah. So I'm you can You can drink know. easier. So, yeah, exactly. yeah. When you do stimulants, then you can really, 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 uh, get the effect produced by alcohol. Yeah. You can exactly, feel it. Exactly. And go all night. Yeah. Okay, so with that said. Yeah, um, I didn't really, I just realized I didn't even answer your question. <laughs> no, you did actually. I think you did. So you pushed people away or you were, it was a shit job. Now, here, here's the thing. Like you talked about, you had an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Was it in your active addiction and alcoholism or was it in recovery? It, I didn't notice it until recovery, but it was in my addiction or it was, yeah, it was since high school, actually. I would, I would go days without eating mm -hmm. and I would pass out at volleyball practice. I would tell girls, yeah, I would tell girls on the team, I have these pills and you can take them and you're not hungry. And Diet pills? Well, it was Adderall. A selling girl's Adderall. Hello. And, uh, and so I was taking drugs. So you were slinging your own Adderall that was prescribed to you to the girls in... On my volleyball oh. club, yeah. <laughs> Did you make amends to that? It's on the list. It's, it's on, on the, the list. list. Okay, okay, good. Um, but yeah, good. so that's when it started, and then I restricted all the way pretty much until I got sober, and then what I I never struggled with overeating until I got sober. Okay. And that's when I started to realize, oh, I have a really unhealthy relationship with food. I understand it all too well. Yeah. I, I've been known to eat my feelings. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's interesting. That's good to know. Now. Parents wanted you to go to rehab at 18. You said no. Did you go to rehab? I did at 27. 27. Yeah. And you went in Orange County or out of state? In Orange, yeah. Okay. I went to Kaiser. You went to the Kaiser program. Mm -hmm. That means that there was no inpatient? There was no inpatient. It was just... Uh, outpatient? Uh, yeah, it was all day. day did you have day detox? Uh, so I detoxed in a coma, actually. Um, I overdosed. Explain that. I overdosed. Uh, you, like, I look, listen, before we go <laughs> forward anymore. This is a trip. 
Like I always see you in passing. Right? Yeah. And we, we talk, you know, often. Uh, you, you clean up real well. Like I, I would never, ever, ever look at you and think, she's one of the ones that overdosed. Yeah. And, and I, I get it. Like you said, you smoked everything. I loved smoking. Yeah. I was a smoker. Like straight, I yeah, was you a straight not, yeah, smoker. You put right? a needle in. I did not like needles. The only needle I put in my body was for steroids. Yeah. I know a lot of people have no problem sticking needles in themselves and chewing dope and all the stuff that they do. But at the end of the day, I was a pussycat. Like yeah. I, when it came to, like I was afraid of needles. Even when I did steroids, like somebody stuck the needle in my butt. It's not like I did it myself. Right. <laughs> and I did that because of major madness body dysmorphia, I think we all share that problem fun, in yes. many different ways, oh, yes. shapes and forms. But, um, so you overdosed as a smoker? So it was intentional. I, uh, I had been drinking for about 36 hours straight. I'd been smoking weed. I was taking, I had gotten out of prescriptions a few months before. Benzos. Yeah, I, uh, I had gotten, I was put on medical leave from my work because I was starting to have panic attacks. What were you doing I, for work with then? I, so I started, uh, after I dropped out of the credential program, I started working in property management and I started managing homeowners associations. Lovely. Which is an industry where a lot of people drink to escape. Yes. Because it's so stressful. The common mm -hmm. question you get asked when you're a property manager is, oh, what dream did you give up on to get here? Right. And because nobody, that's nobody's first choice. Yeah, that. nobody like grows up and thinks, so it uh so that's what i was doing for work and that just kind of became my whole identity it was you know all of my friends were through work everything that i did i drank with i drank hard with everybody from work and right. then on the side i'm also like doing cocaine on my lunch break okay. and then, uh you know drinking when i get home still but it um yeah i started to just get you know more retreating into myself and uh for probably about six months i'd wake up every day and say i'm gonna kill myself today hmm. it was really bad and i started self-harming again and i hadn't done that since i was a teenager i thought i'd outgrown that and i could just feel myself unraveling and I but the actual overdose was what overdosed on what so i overdosed on trazodone i took about 70. Uh, on trazodone all things yeah oh you took a lot of them i took about 70. 70? Yeah. Man, well, you can overdose on that. Yeah. <laughs> you will. Yeah. Okay, so what happened? Did they pump your stomach? Uh, so they, my little brothers found me, they said it, it was too late, they couldn't pump my stomach because uh, the, the last thing to happen before you stop breathing is you actually lose your gag reflex. And so I, mine was gone and so they couldn't pump my stomach. So Where did they find you? Uh, my bedroom, in my parents' room, uh, or in my parents' house. And um, so they had to do what's called an electrolyte flush, which is where they, I think they had like 20 something IVs in me and had to- So the paramedics system. came and did all that? Uh, my brothers took me to the hospital. Oh, they took you in the car to the yeah. hospital? Yeah. You could have died. Yeah. They said if they had been brought in about five minutes later, I would have been dead already. Yeah, they, there was a, about a period of time that they were sitting in the, in the emergency room or in the waiting room. They were waiting to find out first if I was gonna live. Mm -hmm. And then when they said, okay, she's gonna make it. And then they had to wait another period of time to find out if I was gonna be brain dead. Wow, so you you lucked out. Somebody upstairs or someone around this universe was looking out for you, something, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Um, had you, so then you went to rehab. Yeah, well, so I got high one more time. I had to get high one more time because- That's that cunning, baffling, and powerful. I thought, well, because I thought this is the first time I've wanted to be sober. So right. now I can be sober. So I can just get loaded one more time. Well, it, no, I didn't think I was gonna get loaded. I thought I'm going to get out of the hospital and I'm going to be fine. I can do this because now I actually want to be sober. Right. And then that weekend I went out, I went to a casino and I had no intention of getting high and I came home high and I was like, what, how, how, how did that I happen? What? Just weed. Okay. But it was like, it, but it was this, like, I had to do it. It was like, I can't, cause they were drinking and it was like, I can't drink, I can't drink, I can't drink. Okay. I need this. And oh. it was like this, this urgent feeling. 
And that's when I went back to a therapist who had told me before that she thought I was an alcoholic. And so I went back to her and I said, what do I do? I need help. And the therapist could, could pronounce you as one. Yes. <laughs> yes. She, she said, uh, she definitely had no problem saying that uh, you have all the symptoms of an alcoholic. And I actually, I don't even remember. She told me I was an alcoholic. I just remember her telling me, go, you need to go to rehab or you're going to die. And, I, and my, my thing was, I always said, I'll get sober when I'm 30. Mm -hmm. And she said, you will not live to 30. And you were 27. I was 27 at the time. I'm glad you lived and you didn't uh, die in the 27th syndrome. I know, you know about yeah. that. But I do, yeah. I know you You're the 27 club? Yep, yep. Okay, so um, how long were you in rehab? 30 days. Uh, actually, 40 days. I think I did 40 days. Okay. Uh, and then uh, I ended up going back shortly after because I got let go from that job that I'd been at for four years. Mm -hmm. And because uh, all, all the damage I had done and my addiction caught up to me. And they, they had already, they were planning to fire me before I went to rehab. So Was rehab helpful for you? Extremely, yes. So that was the first time I learned about the disease model of addiction. Okay. Uh, that was the first time that everything in my life, everything about me started to make sense. Okay. And um, you were young. Mm -hmm. And I love when I got, it really, this means a lot to me. Like, uh, and I, I put myself in a lot of the youth of today who I see get sober uh, place. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, well, where was I at 27? I know exactly where I was. Yeah. I was at this, I had this mentality of, um, I'm half a century old now, right? Like, oh my God, my life may not be working out for me. Like, I, I probably need help. But when you're like in the throes of your addiction, like, you just don't know a way out unless you really have a guide, you know, or some guide. So I love that you went to rehab, but why did you, because listen, like, there's a lot of people that I see that also come into recovery at a very young age, 27, 26. And we talked about this before, like, you you weren't sure if you considered getting sober at 27 young. It's young. It's yeah. young. I didn't get sober till I was 35 or 36, and I'm still told that that's somewhat young. I don't yeah. think it's that young. I think it's like, you're either about to, like, go into a... a Midlife crisis, or yeah. or you need to really change your life. So, but uh, you take this thing serious, yes. Like by the horns, but I see the way you like are in recovery. You are a stand-up woman who is of service, and and I I say this because I don't see it a lot, and I don't mean with women. I mean with people, especially that are young and and continue to be engulfed in what we call real recovery. Mm -hmm. Like you help countless people. You have a lot, you're a mentor for people. Um, I know some of your mentors. I know that you are trained in the five V's, which is Frankie's, uh, Frankie Oliver. Yeah. I said it right, right? Yeah. Okay. Her book. Yeah. Um, you've worked in treatment. Mm -hmm. um, you've run groups. Uh, but what is it, like what, what made you make that absolute decision that like I'm doing this all the way? I think it was, I had said a prayer maybe two weeks before I got sober. Um, I was I was drunk and I was driving over this overpass and I almost drove off the end of it. And I just remember screaming like, if there's anything or there's anyone that can hear me, please help me. And when I woke up in the hospital, I just had this overwhelming feeling of like this prayer is being answered. And like, I just kind of felt like for the first time, like I'm supposed to be here. And it was so clear to me that I, I have to be sober mm -hmm. and I have, 
I, I felt like I, I followed every impulse that I ever had and I lived that out and I experienced every one of my own ideas because I never listened to anyone. I was never one of those people who like tried. You to just like, did your own thing. I always did my own thing. And I just think that because of like, that was such a gift for me because I was so convinced. I wasn't even that convinced that I was an alcoholic, but I was so convinced that the way I do life doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I was, I just felt really ready to, to do something different and take direction and like, not try to do things right. my way, which is funny because looking back now, I'm like, oh, I was still doing so many things my way in early right. sobriety, but to the best of my ability, 100%, I was doing things the way that my sponsor was telling me to mm -hmm, do them. Mm -hmm. I, I love when you say that you weren't convinced that you were an alcoholic, but I think one of the beauties of being in recovery truly is, is through the process and however that may be, if you're in the 12-step world, if you're doing um, extensive therapy, if you're doing like trauma therapy, what, whatever it is, right, is where you come to the conclusion and, and you make a decision with yourself, like you see the realities about yourself and you just like decide, look, straight up. Yeah. Like all my behaviors were, were of that of one who is drinking like an alcoholic. Yeah. Or, or using like an addict, like addictively, right? Um, it's really interesting. Like, I know you don't do TikTok, but, <laughs> but I, I've gotten into the TikTok space and I didn't realize, and, I was, and I'll say this here right now, I, I made this one um, video not really knowing that if I said in there, um, here's what I said, I, I said, how do you know if your teenager might be on drugs, mm. right? And so I, I wrote up, I said, I threw everything out there, basically everything of my own experience, toilet paper with like, uh, with air freshener inside of it, um, towel behind the door, um, sunken eyes, bad behaviors, certain behaviors that maybe, may, maybe I'm going down a bad path, um, burnt spoon, mm -hmm. tin foil, all these different things. And I, I, I had these kids come on my, on my TikTok and they're just I like, I think I saw something about that. They're like, that. you're a fed, you're a cop, you're a narc, you're <laughs> Takashi 69's dad, blah, blah, blah. You're a traitor. And I'm, I'm thinking like, uh, no, my life just got really fucked up. Yeah. And it, and it was gradual. It wasn't like it just started from like, yeah, I love weed. Like for a long time, I made this huge, huge excuse that weed's natural. It grows from the ground. Yeah. You know, everyone does it. But then, you know, like as I, when I got sober, I was like, what, what was I like trying to justify? Because everything comes from the ground. Yeah. I mean, cocaine comes from coca leaves and like meth at some point or another, I mean, before it gets to the chemist lab or whoever's making it or cooking it, it came from the dirt. Mm -hmm. It came from the ground. Yeah. So what was my whole justification? It was because I was in active addiction. I wanted to say that I'm okay. Don't mess with me. But nobody knew that I would turn into a full-blown junkie. Right. And you, you, um, you describe yourself as you were a junkie, you were an alcoholic. Um, I love when we become recovered of that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that we speak of in our recovery community. You're a powerful force. You know, like I, I want to know what, when when you're doing the teaching the five E's, for example, in, in a treatment setting. Uh, how is it for you? Like, what what happens amongst the people that you are um, that are in your groups? So the first thing that we do is, is we start them off by identifying where in my life do I feel like a victim. Mm -hmm. An emphasis on where in my life do I feel like a victim because a lot of us I think can intellectually know, well I wasn't the victim here because of these circumstances, but yeah. so many of us it's about where we feel like a victim. Right. And so we start from that place of, of 
what am I holding on to? What do I feel trapped by? Kind of in the same way that we work on our resentments in, mm -hmm. in recovery. It's identifying, you know, where do I think in my life I am not in control of these circumstances? Where in my life do I blame my pain and my mm -hmm. continued suffering on somebody else? Right. And then moving them through to uh, identifying where in my life am I being a villain? Mm -hmm. Where am I taking that pain that I've learned out on other people. Right. And then especially in turn, where am I turning that back on myself too? Mm -hmm. Because anytime we're a victim, mm -hmm. most of the time we'll start off in a situation where we've been victimized by somebody else, right. where we truly have been, okay. but we'll continue in that behavior. We'll stay stuck in that behavior. Mm -hmm. We then become our own villain while we're simultaneously the victim. Right. And so then we move out of that place to connecting to our visceral, our visceral is our, our knowing when people say, like, I have a gut feeling. Right. That's our visceral. It's always talking to us, mm -hmm. and it's always connected. It, it's never wrong, and it's what helps us know there's some lie happening mm -hmm. here or there. Our visceral right. is either calm and at peace, or it's disturbed and it's chaotic, right. and it's, it's, you know, uh, it's upset. And mm -hmm. so that's what lets us know I'm in a victim or villain role. Mm -hmm. Then move through vulnerability. That's how we get honest. That's how we talk about what's going on. That's mm -hmm. how we open up about what we want, what we need, what we're feeling. Because mm -hmm. almost always underneath that resentment, it's almost always what? Fear and hurt. Almost always. Yeah. Yeah. We get open and honest about that. And then we move into a state of being vested, mm -hmm. knowing who and what I am. And it's my truth that can't be taken away from me, no matter what somebody says or does. Mm -hmm. So it's moving from a victim mentality where so many of us stay really, really stuck and we get trapped and we do not know how to get out of that how do we move to a place of empowerment how do we move to a place of recognizing that i am in control of everything that is happening in my life i am the common denominator in everything right so it's it's really powerful to watch the patients who attach to it mm -hmm. and watch their entire mindset transform their entire perspective on their lives on their future what they're capable of it's it's literally limitless Depending on how much somebody buys into the concept. You do, you do realize that the house that you're in right now is named Limitless Journey. That's fantastic. I did not know that. It's actually. A that's, that's, a limitless journey. that's really cool. Yeah, I love that word. Uh, yeah. So when, okay, real quick though. So when you're, you just worked recently, I know you don't work there anymore, but um, if, if it's my understanding that there's a lot of mental health there. Yes. And you're actually able, everything you just described is beautiful. I, I know it all too well. I've read Frankie's book, The Five V's. Um, I love that you are so knowledgeable and you're living it. Like really like this is part of you. It's part of your makeup, right? Um, when, when teaching this to people with mental health, I love that there's empowerment. You're connecting to them, obviously. It's yeah. helping them immensely, right? Yes. Right. Yeah, so I work through it with them. My big thing, and this isn't always supported at a psychiatric clinic, but I think... Why should you be vulnerable with me if I'm not vulnerable with you first? Mm. Because that's how I learned. Right. My first sponsor was always, uh, she she would tell me things about her life and she would sit there and she would cry with me and she would right. tell me what was going on and she was open and honest mm -hmm. with me and I literally learned how to be vulnerable by watching her be vulnerable with it. me. And I also think that's how we build rapport with people. Right. Is, I can't, ex I can't just walk in and expect you to believe that I know where you are. Mm -hmm. I can't expect you to trust that, oh, I've been where you, you know, I, I've been where you are right now. Mm -hmm. How are they, I, anybody could say that. Right. So I have to prove to them that number one, I, I, I have the similar experiences to them. Mm -hmm. And then also just because I'm maybe further along in my journey doesn't mean that I have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. I still have things actively in my life where I'm currently being a victim. Mm -hmm. So I literally work through it with them. And right. I think that helps a lot. You have a relationship. You're in a relationship with a man. Yes. I've seen your relationship. Uh, he, he's a good man. Yeah. He's in recovery. Mm -hmm. um, 
A lot of ups and downs? No. He is so grounded and solid, and he is somebody who he won't gossip. Mm -hmm. He won't, he's like the least judgmental person mm -hmm. I know. He is just so emotionally grounded. Nice. And really, like, he won't argue. I was someone before I got into this relationship, I right. loved arguing. Mm -hmm. I believed that it, like, you know, that's where we see, like, who people really are right. and all this stuff. And, like, I would try to do it with him, and he would just be like, I love you. And then he'd walk away. <laughs> like, wouldn't participate. What can you say to that? Wouldn't participate in it. Nothing. Like, he, like, I have a struggle with codependency, and uh, I was gonna ask. That was the next question. Oh yeah. Oh, oh perfect. <laughs> codependency. Yes. You say you have a struggle with it. You still struggle with it. It is still, but I've done a lot of work on okay. it. For me, I found that just having the awareness and educating myself on it mm. was almost enough for me to to pretty much remove it from my life. Mm. I still struggle internally with it, but right. I'm disciplined enough to to do the behaviors, to not enable to put up boundaries. Mm -hmm. It's very yeah. freeing to overcome codependent behaviors. And, oh my God, yeah. And I, when you go a little bit deeper, I'm sure you have too, that's probably why you've been working through your codependency, is to see where the stem, where the like root cause of it comes. Like in my, I, I say it a lot, in our culture, in Persian culture, it's like the whole community is codependent. Mm -hmm. um, when I got sober, I was in treatment. My counselor, there was people there for primary codependency. That's it. Yeah. Like, not even addiction. Mm -hmm. and, well, they were addicted to people yeah. or control. Um, but to actually like to 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 recognize your codependency and and face it and know where it comes from and try not to act it because I, I still I love I love my family. And, and I know that they've done their individual work on themselves too. But like when I see codependency show up in a conversation, whether it be on their side or on my side, I love to be able to get in front of it and like stop that behavior. So, cause it, usually it, it's a selfish act for my own, yes. for my own being. Like it's me wanting to be in control. And if you don't, if I can't fix the situation, then I can't do it my way. And where does that come from? From my family. It came from my parents mostly, right? Mostly my mom. And I love her so much. Yeah. I, I really know that she's done a lot of work on herself too, but I love that you bring that up because my rehab counselor used to say that most addicts and alcoholics, if not all of them, have codependency. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, well, we have control issues. Mm -hmm. Naturally, I think when we get sober, we lose control of so much. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do? We're going to try to grasp on and control right. what little we feel we have left, mm -hmm. which isn't the truth. But it's, yeah, for me, it was uh, it was people. And, right. it was, and I saw it a lot in sponsorship and mm -hmm. that was where that was what finally got me to work on it was right. the, the consequences that i had in my relationships with the sponsor various people yeah that yeah. you work with awesome awesome um i think we've covered a lot yeah i really really enjoyed having you on today i i knew it was going to be good yeah i really, really did just good people all around um anything you want to say before we go no i well i just think that um the biggest thing that I'm really learning right now, especially, is I mean, if you're if you're struggling, to reach out and to ask for help. Because I know for me, uh, you know, before I got sober, I didn't know that there were places that could help me. I didn't know there were people struggling with the same things that I was, and that still applies to me today. Like everything that I'm going through, I'll hold it in sometimes because I'll think, well, I have this much time sober, so I shouldn't be struggling with this, mm -hmm. or you know, I I. I I have this relationship, so that shouldn't be an issue for me. And that's not true. There's mm -hmm. no should and there's no should not. Those those don't actually exist. Mm -hmm. And so to you know, just speak up, ask for help, and 
um, you know, find safe people. And when you do trust them, open up to them and use them because that's, you know, no one does this alone. And there are safe people out there. Yeah, 100%. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, thank you for coming to the corner. Thank you so much for having me.